You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1932nd edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 8th of June 2023. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Pat Needham and your readers are Jill and Nick Gain. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Flight school on cloud nine with potential new home. Campaigners stage protest against deep sea mining. New mayor aims to make a difference. New site to provide purpose-built care for prickly patients. A rough and flying school on the brink of closing after being told its site lease was not being extended could have secured a new home at the 11th hour. Skyward Flight Trainings Chris Shepherd-Rose received a letter from the owners Ruffham Estates in February informing him his lease would expire at the end of May. But as the owner and members of the school were packing up on Wednesday, he told the Bravery Press they potentially had a new home subject to approval from the site's owners. He said, It is really positive news after the last four months. The site is not too far from Bury, and we are in talks and have put in proposals with a solicitor who is talking to the site's trust and we are waiting to hear from them. Talks are ongoing and nowhere near complete yet, so we are temporarily suspending school operations and all trial lesson vouchers people have uh, will be extended for the length of time the school is temporarily suspended for. I have looked at the field and it is a lovely sight. No houses on the approach, no houses on the climb out. It is ideal and very positive. So I have my fingers crossed and will know more in a couple of weeks. Since the news broke of the school having to leave Ruffham Airfield, Chris said, the support had been amazing and thanked everyone for their well-wishing messages. He added, They have all been terrific. The last four months have been the worst in my life. I could not have got through all this without the support of our members and the local community. The stress has been immense. After going from having a good relationship with Ruffham Estate to being given a four-month notice, not three years as previously stated by them, it has been very hard. But now, if everything comes together with the new site, we can put more plans in place for the future of Skywood, and these next weeks will give me a chance to recover and re-evaluate the school to make it better than ever. Volunteers from Greenpeace Suffolk Group took part in a global protest urging the government to call for a halt on deep-sea mining. They gathered at Maggie Hambling's scallop sculpture on Oldborough Beach with Stop Deep Sea Mining signs on Saturday 3rd of June. The protest took place ahead of World Oceans Day on June the 8th and the International Seabed Authority meeting on deep-sea mining in Kingston, Jamaica next month. Rob Stevenson, a local volunteer from Woodbridge, said... I joined volunteers from Greenpeace Suffolk Group to send a message to our MP, Therese Coffey, and PM Rishi Sunak 
that they need to take ocean protection seriously and call for a ban on deep sea mining. Deep sea mining would destroy the habitat of fantastic sounding but little known sea life such as ghost octopus, yeti crab, scaly foot snail or barrel eye fish. The UK government is currently supporting research into deep sea mining having approved exploratory licences 10 years ago to UK seabed resources. The UK also sponsors, through UK seabed resources, some of the largest areas for deep sea mining exploration, covering 133,000 square kilometres of the Pacific Ocean, an area larger than the size of England. Mr Stevenson said, Rather than a handful of companies exploiting the deep sea for profit, we need to prioritise reusing resources and moving to a sustainable circular economy. I don't want the phone I use or the chips in my computer to be there as a result of damage to such a precious ecosystem which protects us from climate change and provides livelihoods to people across the world. The new mayor of Bury St Edmunds says she is looking forward to supporting the townspeople and organisations in as many ways as she can. Councillor Diane Hind was elected the new chair of Bury St Edmunds Town Council at its annual meeting last week. She automatically becomes town mayor. Councillor Donna Higgins was elected vice chair and becomes deputy mayor. Councillor Hind, who represents Tollgate Ward, and has been a town councillor since 2015, said, I feel honoured and privileged to have been elected as chair of the town council and thereby the mayor of our wonderful town. I intend to be an inclusive mayor and I'm keen that we support as many charities, organisations, schools, volunteer groups, associations and businesses as we can. If a visit is requested, then my deputy mayor and I will do our best to attend if we are free. I hope that we will make a difference to people's lives and be accessible. One of Councillor Hines' first assignments was to sign official charter documents during a visit to Compiègne, France, last weekend. Bury St Edmunds has been twinned with the French town since 1967. The town council took over the mayoral role from the former borough council in 2019. Visits were delayed, however, due to covid Various Nedmans has also been twinned with Kivalar, Germany, since 1981. At last, at last weekend's uh, annual town meeting, Councillor Hine told town councillors who elected her unanimously, I hope people will feel that they can approach us for anything at all. I want everyone to feel that the mayor, as a first citizen, is their representative. The town's previous mayor, Peter Thompson, who represented Morton Hall, lost his seat on the Town Council early this month. He also lost his West Suffolk Council seat. This followed his suspension from the Conservative group for alleged breach of party rules in April. Councillor Hine said Mr Thompson's future was a matter for his own conscience. Councillor Hine is also the West Suffolk Councillor for Tollgate Ward. Donna Higgins is also the West Suffolk Councillor for Minden Ward, Both represent the Labour Party. The founder of the Suffolk Hedgehog Hospital hopes she has solved the prickly problem of too many sick animals and not enough space after purchasing a site for a new hospital. We've been overwhelmed over the last few weeks 
And we're at a loss to know why, said Sue Stubbley, who opened the hospital at her home in Owsden about 15 years ago. There is much more sickness than we have ever seen, not to mention the 43 hedgehogs brought in over the past six weeks, suffering from strimmer injuries from grass cutting, said Sue, who has had to set up extra wards in her home after the three buildings in her garden overflowed with patients. There are hedgehogs in every room in my house except for one bedroom and there's even a badger cub in the shower. I've had to move into an annex, she said. But for Sue and her dedicated group of voluntary helpers, there is now a light at the end of the tunnel. She has finalised the purchase of 27 acres of land at Kirtling from Lord and Lady Fairhaven and hopes to use it to house a purpose-built hospital as well as providing a habitat to support a variety of wildlife. I hope it can be somewhere people enjoy as an animal sanctuary and also a sanctuary for themselves, said Sue. The timescale depends on financial arrangements and planning requirements as well as discussions with local residents who Sue is very keen to have on board. Our main priority now is to get power and water onto the site before we can contemplate moving and we are desperate to find donors, perhaps even local corporate donors, who can help us fund that. Now for general news announcement. Is your town or village best in Suffolk or do you have the kindest people? A county-wide search for Suffolk's most inspirational and impactful individuals, groups, councils and communities is officially underway from today. The Suffolk Community Awards 2023 recognises and celebrates all those who have improved the quality of life for a community in Suffolk. It is a partnership approach delivered by Community Action Suffolk, Suffolk County Council and Suffolk Association of Local Councils. 16 awards are up for grabs, with categories ranging from Most Active Town to Outstanding Contribution to Volunteering and the Anne Dunford OBE Award for Youth Participation. New this year is a special accolade acknowledging the work of the faith sector. Named the Faith Award, it will be awarded to an individual or organisation carrying out particularly outstanding work for a faith community. Entries for any of the categories must be made by the awards website and should be submitted no later than Sunday 16th of July. A ceremony will be held for all selected winners at the Museum of Food in Stowmarket on Monday September 25th. It will be hosted by former BBC Radio Suffolk breakfast presenter Mark Murphy MBE. Speaking about the launch of the awards, Chris Abraham, CEO of Community Action Suffolk, said, Community Action Suffolk has always placed a great deal of emphasis on annually recognising and applauding the work of individuals and communities across Suffolk. We are delighted to again be running the awards in partnership with Suffolk County Council and SALC and are very much looking forward to seeing the entries which come in from across the community. This is the perfect opportunity to shout from the rooftops about the person, group, club, neighbourhood or local council which you really feel has made a significant difference to the lives of others. Councillor Bobby Bennett, Cabinet Member for Equality and Communities at Suffolk County Council, added, 
Suffolk County Council is a partner in the Suffolk Community Awards because they shine a light on some of the remarkable people, groups, organisations and communities which make Suffolk such a great place to live. I encourage everyone to head over to suffolkcommunityawards.co.uk for more information and to make a nomination. Another passionate advocate for the awards is last year's winner of the Rodney MacLeod Award, which applauds a youth club for its activities and operations on behalf of a community. The award was won by Ben Poole, who set up the Lowestoft Boxing Academy. He says, Winning an award like this is a great way of validating the commitment you have made to people in your community. It recognises the work you put in and highlights things which perhaps you feel go unnoticed at times. Personally, I feel that winning one of the Suffolk Community Awards was a very was a way of cementing a legacy for myself and the organisation, and it reiterates how important the voluntary sector is to the wider community. Campaigners battling to stop miles of pylons being built across swathes of Norfolk and Suffolk countryside have written to King Charles III to ask for help in their fight. The Essex-Suffolk-Norfolk Pylons Action Group has taken the unusual step of writing to the recently crowned monarch as part of their efforts to secure a rethink over National Grid's East Anglia Green project. The plan for the line of 50 metre tall pylons, which would stretch for 110 miles through Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex, has sparked criticism. National Grid says the pylon route is needed to transport wind energy generated off the Norfolk coast. But critics, including the Action Group and MPs such as South Norfolk's Richard Bacon and former Home Secretary Priti Patel, MP for Whitham in Essex, have campaigned for the line to be buried under the sea. A Martin Snook from the Essex-Suffolk-Norfolk Pylons Action Group has written to the King appealing for him to help trigger a rethink. He said, We decided to contact King Charles at this point because we believe that as Head of State, he should be aware of what is going on before it is too late to change course. The National Grid Pylons proposal is a bad solution and will leave an awful legacy. Our letter is possibly an unusual step to take, but the more time passes, the greater the risk the project will proceed in its current form by default. Rosie Pearson, founder of the Action Group, said, Everyone knows how committed the King is to environment conservation, so we hope he will be able to join us in some way. We are aware he doesn't intervene in political disputes, but he may be able to persuade the government to consider the offshore alternative we as a group have researched and costed. Newmarket Local News A Newmarket company has gone into receivership after nearly 40 years of trading. Allied Mechanical Services Limited, which moved to purpose-built headquarters in Willie Snaith Road four years ago after outgrowing its former offices, called in staff members ten days ago to break the news that the company could not continue trading. It is understood that around 70 people have lost their jobs and some are owed up to a month's wages. The company, which supplies electrical, plumbing, heating and aircon services. A surgeon has completed the toughest foot race on earth in a bid to help sick children. James Tyson, who lives at Bolsham near Newmarket and is a consultant ear, nose and throat and skull-based surgeon at Addenbrooke's Hospital, spent six gruelling days crossing 250 kilometres of sand dunes 
while scaling rocky mountains and white hot salt plains, all to raise money for the children's brain tumour charity, Tom's Trust. The Marathon des Sables was an incredible race, 250 kilometres across the Sahara Desert in six stages through epic scenery with strong camaraderie between the 1,000 runners, said James. Conditions were more difficult than usual as there was a heat wave with temperatures up to 55 degrees centigrade, which made running through sand dunes hard work and resulted in 30% of runners dropping out over the course of the week, he said. I was pleased to make it through to finish the race and to have the opportunity to raise money for Tom's Trust, as the suffering in the desert cannot compare to the difficulties faced by children with brain tumours and their families. He had to carry everything he needed on his back, provided only with water rations and communal goat's hair Berber tents, supplied and pitched each night for him and his fellow competitors to sleep in. Setting off on Sunday, April the 23rd, he had to cope with temperatures which soared to 55 degrees centigrade and sandstorms during the 37th edition of the world-famous ultramarathon. Running conditions underfoot in the competition were extremely challenging and the third day of the event saw a large number of the competitors forced to drop out. Day four saw the longest edge of the competition with James pushing through 90 kilometres in one stretch, including running through the night. He finally crossed the finish line on day seven and smashed his target of £3,000, raising more than £5,200, an amount which will ensure five families receive the mental health care they need after a brain tumour diagnosis. Debs Mitchell, co-founder of Tom's Trust, said, We are blown away with James and everything he's done for the children we support here at Tom's Trust. We can even imagine how difficult it must have been for him to push through the race under those conditions. We simply can't thank him enough for choosing to fundraise for us. Town greeted the Queen. Newmarket's British Racing School welcomed the Queen on one of her first official solo visits since the coronation on June 1st. Queen Camilla was at the British Racing School, which this year is celebrating its 40th anniversary having been officially opened by the then Prince of Wales in November 1983. The visit was originally due to have taken place in March, but was postponed to the last minute due to bad weather impacting on the Royal Visitors' Transport arrangements. At the Snailwell Rolls School, the Queen will, was first be introduced, was introduced to the work of the New Market Pony Academy, a community project aimed at local primary school children using horses and ponies to positively affect their mental health and well-being. It also gives youngsters the opportunity to learn new skills such as teamwork and helps boost their confidence and resilience. She also met students from the riding school, a dream academy, which is based at the school and was set up in the name of Karadija Mela after she became the first British Muslim woman to ride a race winner. Over the past four decades, the racing school has been primarily responsible for training those wanting to work in the racing industry. Its flagship programme is the Foundation Course, a Level 2 Diploma Apprenticeship for 16 to 25 year olds, which prepares students for jobs as stable staff, riding and looking after racehorses. To date, some 4,000 young people have successfully completed the course, including top jockeys 
Tom Markand and Paul Hannigan, and every champion apprentice for the past 10 years. The Queen will, was introduced to students on the current foundation course, watched them riding out on the school straight gallop, and met some of the workplace apprentices practising on their me mechanical equinices. In the main yard, she will be introduced to staff, students, volunteers and supporters before unveiling a plaque to mark the school's anniversary. After leaving the racing school, the Queen will head to the National Horse Racing Museum. And now for a letter from the East Anglian Daily Times on the 7th of June. Sherry McGarry from the Stowmarket Eachco Future Group says, I am appalled that Mark Murphy, who hosted the Greenest County Awards, could have written what, I believe, is such a biased piece of journalism as Ipswich looks so unsightly thanks to No Mo May. This type of coverage is totally from his own viewpoint. In my opinion, it's ignorant as he has sought no expert help in understanding the reason for leaving the verges for biodiversity. It's unfair as there is no equal opportunity to reply and rebut. I'm not going to present the many excellent reasons that make it imperative to offer some help to our dwindling insect populations, 60% less in 20 years, or the effect that has on our own food chain. Someone, such as Richard Palmy, Mid-Suffolk Biodiversity Officer, would be able to present the other side of this debate. Barry Peters in the Berry Free Press writes, Those really dark days are thankfully long gone. Two days out over the past fortnight made me cast my thoughts back to the dark days, lockdowns. I wasn't longing for a return, quite the opposite. I was simply thankful for my lot. First came on a night out to the apex in Bury St Edmunds after a day at work. In an office filled with colleagues, not a mask in sight but still hygiene conscious, simply glorious. Next up that day was a fun-filled night at the apex for a gig, packed with people, old and young, and not one of them wearing a mask. Those days of carting one in my pocket everywhere seemed both so, so long ago but also like they were only yesterday. And then fast forward to Sunday, day one of the wonderful Spring Fair. I declare an interest as a director of the BID for all my social media trolls. Here I stroll through the town among throngs of men and women, children and pets, just enjoying a late May day and the freedoms we are once again afforded away from the virus. It's not so long ago that the streets were deserted and we peered longingly outside just wishing for days like these. Well, they're back, and we should all grab them at every opportunity. Malcolm Searle, from the, written in the Newmarket Journal and the Berry Free Press, who lives in Baker's Lane, Bury St Edmunds, says, Bishop Martin Seeley writes a glowing tribute to Suffolk's traditions of staying in touch with the land, and finishes with the assertion that we are in touch with the natural world, with the rhythms of life on which our lives depend. With all due respect... He can't be more wrong. He fails to mention that among the exhibitors of the agricultural shows that he praises are the examples that define the very opposite of these assertions. The agrochemical industrial companies that have brought our plant to an existential crisis of ecological and biodiversity collapse through unsustainable practices and reliance on products and technology that are anathema to the natural world. We are out of kilter with nature but Bishop Martin adheres to business as usual, 
to see us through, even though all the evidence indicates that another course is necessary for our collective survival. John Pierce Higgins, who's 11 years old, from Berry St Edmunds, writes, This land is smiles better as an airfield. Last week I had a breathtaking experience of becoming airborne. It was Saturday 20th of May and I took the controls of an aeroplane and soared high in the sky, but when I landed I realised that soon the marvellous opportunity will be gone and the runway will be destroyed. Ruffham Airfield is a friendly, accessible place where there's smiles everywhere and a friendly atmosphere. Yet it will be over in a couple of days, so I just hope that readers will realise that the hum of planes will cease and so will the spectacular sunsets over the field and runway, instead transformed into an ugly estate with unfriendly houses and skyward flight training will have spread their wings and flown away, never to be seen again. And a general announcement from the East Anglian Daily Times. The UK government has provided unprecedented levels of grants and one-off payments to help with energy bills, alongside more than 40 other support schemes, depending on your circumstances and income, to help with the cost of living. Through the Energy Price Guarantee and Energy Bills Support Scheme, the government has covered around half of a typical household energy bill this winter, saving about £1,500 by the end of June. In the summer months, less heating is used, but there are still actions you can take to reduce energy consumption. Information on the support schemes and energy saving tips can be found at gov.uk slash help for households. The Energy Bill Support Scheme, along with the Energy Price Guarantee and other government cost of living support schemes, have already proved really helpful for mum of four, Jaylene Pritchard. She lives in North Derbyshire with partner Ben, a market worker, and her children. Jaylene said, The children's school has been extremely accommodating. They're like family and really couldn't do any more for us. One support scheme that has really helped our family is the Household Support Fund. Heidi Ketton, the school's early help manager, has been so helpful. She helped our family to fill out the application form so that we could get extra support. With the increase in energy bills and cost of living, Jaylene and her family are not the only ones who are finding life tough and who have benefited from government support. Heidi added, We have seen more and more families in the area seek help and many are initially reluctant to admit that they're struggling. In just over a month, she helped 160 families with government cost of living support schemes and all are appreciative of the extra funds they received. There is support out there and help to seek it out too, stressed Heidi. Check you're getting all the payments you're eligible for and take steps now to make sure you're ready for next winter. The Energy Price Guarantee, which limits the amount you can be charged per unit of gas or electricity, has been extended at the same level until the end of June. Through the Energy Bills Support Scheme, most households have automatically received a £400 discount on their energy bills between October 2022 and March this year. Those households who did not receive the support automatically, as they do not have a domestic electricity supply, may be eligible to apply for the Energy Bills Support Scheme alternative funding until the 31st of May 2023. Now is the best time to look at how you can save money on heating costs this coming winter, and there are plenty 
of little actions you can take immediately to reduce the amount of energy you use. You can reduce boiler flow temperature to save up to £100 a year. Turn appliances off at sockets to save as much as £70 a year. Install an energy efficient shower head to save up to £55 a year. Take shorter showers to save up to £90 a year. Wash clothes at lower temperatures to save up to £40 a year. And finally, switch to energy saving light bulbs to save up to £55 a year. Now then, did you know that the Suffolk Kite, Flower, Kite Flyers Club is moving to Stonham Barnes Park from June the 1st? One member was heard discussing another to another member and said, I asked my doctor if I could have something for persistent wind. So he gave me this kite. Now on to more important things. Last week, on Thursday 25th of May, it was officially announced that West Suffolk Hospital has secured the funds for its new hospital construction through the new hospitals programme. The hospital is among the first 40 new hospitals prioritised for development and the aim is to complete construction by 2030. The new West Suffolk Hospital will be rebuilt entirely using a standardised design referred to as Hospital 2.0. Aiming to be completed ahead of all other builds, it will serve as a blueprint for other hospitals to follow and replicate. In light of the Health Secretary Steve Barclay's statement to the Commons, Joe Churchill MP warmly welcomed him to the hospital site on Thursday. On Friday, James Cartledge MP visited the site to meet with Joe and the Trust Management team to learn more about the work that led to West Suffolk's inclusion in this crucial project and how it will improve care delivery in the region. Commenting, Joe Churchill MP said, I am over the moon with the announcement of a new fully funded West Suffolk Hospital. Not only are we to receive our share of government funding, but I have also pushed to ensure that we are the front of the queue. I know the passion it takes to bring a project of this size forward. Since 2015, I have championed your need for a new hospital. Our hospital and staff are special and Berry has always offered excellent care. Now we can look forward to this being delivered in world-class facilities as we are first in line, serving as an exemplar hospital after others to follow. It was a pleasure to celebrate this announcement by welcoming the Secretary of State Steve Barclay MP and South Suffolk MP James Cartledge to Berry for a tour of the site where they had the opportunity to meet with hospital staff and learn more about the plans from Chief Executive Ewan Cameron and Programme Director Gary Norgate. I am incredibly proud of what we have accomplished together so far. Through our passion and persistent efforts in conveying the local need to government, the local council and other stakeholders, we have made significant progress. With just a few steps to go, I look forward to breaking ground and working to deliver world-class healthcare for all at our new West Suffolk Hospital. Commenting, James Cartledge MP said, I am absolutely delighted to see West Suffolk Hospital prioritised within the government's commitment to 40 new hospitals, with West Suffolk being rebuilt completely as a brand new hospital. It was good to visit last week with my constituency neighbour, Joe Churchill, 
to meet staff and to see firsthand the structural issues that they are facing, necessitating this entire rebuild. We have been lobbying for many years for improvements to the NHS in Suffolk. With news of the rebuild included in my 2019 election address, ensuring the hospital delivers high-quality care for many more years to come. I am very grateful to the senior leadership team and my MP colleagues who have worked so hard to secure this investment in our locality, ensuring the creation of a fantastic new hospital serving my constituents in South Suffolk. And now for a long read from local historian Martin Taylor, who takes a look at the Guildhall Fefment and its schools which are 180 years old this year. The Guildhall Fefment started in the 15th century as the Candlemas Guild by Jankin Smythe, perhaps the town's premier benefactor. His endowed service of 1481 has been celebrated in St Mary's Church nearly every year since then, making it perhaps the oldest such service in the country. After the service, a cake and ale ceremony is held in the Guildhall, perhaps the oldest civic building in continuous use in the country, and owned by the Guildhall Fefment Trust. The Guildhall Fefment has remained steadfast in the heritage and history of Bury St Edmunds. Over the years, the Trust and its Fefees, another name for trustees, has supported the less well-off of Bury. For example, with the dissolution of the monasteries in 1539, the poor of the town no longer received alms and charity, and this shortage was addressed by the Guildhall Fefment in distributing to the poor. This beneficence has continued through the centuries with almshouses being owned by the Trust throughout the town. Long Row almshouses in Northgate and Southgate Street, College Square and cottages in Hengrave. The Trust has also taken over responsibility in running the Fennel Homes in St Andrew Street North. Moises Hall Museum, the Guildhall and No Man's Meadow near to the Abbey site are owned by the Trust. Other important buildings once owned by it were the Angel Hotel and the Shire Hall, which was the Magistrates' Courts. The fact that anybody of any importance in Bury throughout the years was a fefe meant they were in a position of power. After the dissolution, it was left to the fefees to run the town, and as the abbot was mitred and thus represented the town in Parliament, consequently it was not until the third charter of James I, or sixth, of 1614, that we had representation in Parliament after an absence of nearly 75 years. In 1839, a scheme for the future application of the income of the Guildhall Fefees was proposed for sanction by the Court of Chancery. Apart from the election of new Fefees, monies were to be given to St James's, St Mary's and the erection of a new chapel of ease to the latter, built as St Peter's in 1858. Other contributions were to the corporation rates Suffolk General Hospital and by specific bequests by the wills of Francis Pinner and Anthony Smith, bread and clothing to be distributed to the poor. Of course, this also meant that the Fefees could leave in their wills other parcels of land for the benefit of the town, hence three schools came into being. This is why the Guildhall Fefment Trust was able to build schools in Bridewell Lane, College Street and on the corner of Wells Street, Short Brackland, as they owned this land. The following are descriptions of how the schools came about. So it was agreed, three schools shall be erected and supported by the Fefis and be open to the children of all religious denominations and be called the Guildhall Commercial School, the Guildhall School for Poor Girls and the Guildhall School for Poor Boys, 
and that the sum of £1,650 should be expended on their erection. These three free schools were to be established and supported by the Guildhall Fethment. The commercial school in Guildhall in College Street is a handsome building in the Elizabethan style erected in 1842 and has a playground. The master, who must be a member of the Church of England, has £150 per annum from the Fethees and five shillings per quarter from each boy. And the Fethees also pay about £70 a year to assistant masters and £10 for coals, etc. For their five shillings per quarter, 150 boys are here instructed in English and other modern languages, in writing, arithmetic, geography, history, and so much of mathematics and the dead languages as deemed necessary. I assume Greek and Latin. Mr Thomas Jones, BA, is the headmaster and has a good staff of assistants. The Poor Boys' School in Bridewell Lane was built in 1843 in the Elizabethan style. It is a house for the master and a large and handsome school for 300 boys who pay one penny each per week and are instructed in reading, writing, geography, history, as well as gardening and some other manual occupations. The master has a yearly salary of £90 beside the boys' weekly pence and a good residence. The Fefis also pay about £60 a year for monitors, stationery, etc. Mr Henry William Fuller is the headmaster. The Poor Girls' School in Well Street now occupies a neat brick building erected in 1852 and comprising a house for the mistress and a schoolroom for 150 girls who pay one penny per week and instructed in reading, writing, arithmetic, knitting, sewing and washing. The mistress has the scholar's pence and a yearly salary of £40. About £30 a year is paid for by the Fefis for monitors and stationery, etc. Mrs Elizabeth Rombolo is the mistress. The various school teachers back then lived in various follows. Mr Thomas Jones at 14 Orchard Street, Mr Fuller at the schoolhouse in Bridewell Lane and Mrs Rombolo in Well Street. The Fishment School buildings, Master's House, attached walls and gates are Grade 2 listed and were designed by architect Henry Kendall Jr, whose father of the same name ran a practice with him at one time at 17 Suffolk Street, London. They were founders of the Royal Institute of British Architects, Reba. Because of their names are the same, I assume that the younger Henry was the architect as senior would have been around 66 years old when the Fiefment schools were built. The Poor Boys School in Bridewell Lane, once called Mr Andrew Street, has a hall and according to the listing has a five bay open timber roof in Jacobean style with arch brace hammer, beam, trusses and cusped spandrels to the collar braces and square moulded hanging finials. There are three rows of through purlins. One classroom has a timber arch brace collar truss. The exterior of the building is built in red brick with black brick headers, white brick, napped flint dressings and a slate roof. The listing describes it as a Tudor Gothic style. Next to the entrance, further classrooms were added in 1882. After World War II, temporary huts were added with the acronym H-O-R-S-A, HORSA, Hutting Operation for Raising of School Leaving Age. 
constructed from prefabricated concrete walls, asbestos roofs and metal frame windows, they were replaced 2016 with further new extensions with the mandatory archaeological dig uncovering remnants of flint walls from a medieval kitchen. The commercial school in College Street has a range similar in style to the Poor Boys School and was initially detached but is now linked by 20th century extensions to the main block. Both of these schools have been somewhat enlarged since then. The facade of the commercial school in College Street has seen the stepped par parapet with armorial shields, one to Fiefman founder Jankin Smythe, now gone, as has a window now bricked up but once set between two others. The poor girls' school has seen many changes. One of the most famous teachers associated with the school was Nora Robinson, who would become the world-famous author Nora Lofts. The school is now a letting commercial and estate agents, Hazel & Company, owned by George Hazel. Over the years, several changes have taken place at the Guildhall Fiefment School. In 1974, the age range of children taught was from 4 to 9 years old, but this changed to 4 to 11 years old in 2016. Consequently, the numbers of children have increased, bringing with it a larger catchment area for this very popular school. An association with the past, however, is not forgotten with every June the children attend the Jenkins Smythe Memorial Service held in St Mary's Church. And some local news from Ixworth. A West Suffolk care village has been shut down by inspectors after being rated inadequate twice in a row. Ixworth Court Dementia Village, which is operated by Leaf Care Services Limited, has had its care provider's registration removed. The dementia care home was rated inadequate for the first time in August when inspectors found the service employing under-18s without appropriate support and training. Overall, it was found to be lacking in safety, effectiveness, care and leadership, while its responsiveness was deemed to require improvement. The latest report by the Care Quality Commission, published on November the 18th, found there were areas of improvement, but this was not sufficient and embedded and further work was required. Though inspectors found that the provider was no longer in breach of staffing regulations, care plans were deemed not to be sufficiently detailed in how to effectively support people who experience episodes of distress and to mitigate any risk. The service remained in special measures for six months, but the Care Quality Commission has now begun the process of preventing the provider from operating this service. Car crashes into Grade 2 Village Pub. A landlady has said she felt numb after a car crashed into a pub on Monday lunchtime. Sheena Parsons, who runs the Bell at Kentford, told the BBC that the Mercedes had hit the side wall of a newly revamped room at the 16th century Grade 2 listed former coaching inn, which stands on a busy crossroads on the B1506, B1506 through the village. Thank goodness we weren't open, said Mrs Parsons. Suffolk Police said the blue Mercedes had hit the side wall of the pub just before 1pm. They said the female driver was conscious and breathing and had sustained only superficial arm and leg injuries. The road was closed for about two hours while the crashed car was recovered. 
Mrs Parsons, who runs the bell with her husband and son, said that work on the inside garden room that the car ran into had just been completed after a year's work. There could have been somebody sitting at a table and thank God there was no one walking down the road, added Mrs Parsons. Looking back 10 years ago, a building left to deteriorate for 20 years won an architectural award for the way it was given a new life in 2013. The Maltings in Mildenhall Road, Bury St Edmunds, was the only building the Bury Society felt worthy of one of its annual architectural awards. The award was presented at the Society's annual meeting to Scott Bailey, Havebury Housing Partnership's Head of Development, and the architect, Aoife O'Gorman. Bury Society Vice Chairman, Karen Hurden, said transforming the building, which was last used as a carpet warehouse, into light and attractive flats must have been a very difficult project. Society Chairman Alan Jari said, The clever thing is the use of light wells to bring light into the heart of the building. 72-year-old man charged after five Gossalks shot and killed. A 72-year-old man has been charged after five Gossalks were shot and killed in West Suffolk. The birds of prey were found on Monday, January 16th, having been left in a parking area near the B1106 in King's Forest, near Berry St Edmunds. X-rays showed all five birds had suffered injuries from multiple pieces of shot. On March 27th, Suffolk Police arrested a 72-year-old man on suspicion of breaching firearms licensing conditions. He was taken to Berry St Edmunds Police Investigation Centre for questioning before being released under investigation. Francis Addison from South Park, Wheating, has since been charged with the following offences. These include five counts of possession of a dead Schedule 1 wild bird, killing a non-Schedule 1 wild bird, use of an animal trap in a circumstance for which it is not approved, and two counts of possession of an article capable of being used to commit a summary offence, namely two air rifles and six animal traps. In addition, he has been charged with six counts of failing to comply with the conditions of a firearm certificate and four counts of failing to comply with the condition of a shotgun certificate. Addison is due to appear at Norwich Magistrates Court on Thursday, June 29. Looking back 25 years ago, in 1998, an American airman who risked his life to free bombs from a plane during a wartime raid was awarded America's oldest military decoration, the Purple Heart, 54 years on. He went into the bomb bays as the B-17 Flying Fortress flew over Ghent in Belgium and forcibly released two trapped bombs. Freezing temperatures meant the young Lieutenant Colonel was unaware of a shrapnel injury to his left foot until he'd removed his boot and discovered it full of blood as his frozen circulation came back. Major Earl Rudolph, who lived in Lakenheath, was presented with the Purple Heart by 3rd Air Force Commander Major General William Hinton. Farm's founder has stepped back from site following fines. The man behind a farm with a community ethos in Thurston is taking a step back after being ordered to pay more than £3,000 for enforcement breaches. Field of Dreams founder Mark Byford described it as heartbreaking as he spoke of his recent court appearance over the site he launched eight years ago this month. Mr Byford admitted planning enforcement offences, 
including failure to remove a driveway and polytunnels with the case with the case brought by Mid Suffolk District Council. He was issued with a £1,500 fine and other costs totalling £2,100. The driveway and the polytunnels in question have now been removed, he said. Speaking of the financial impact, Mr Byford said, it's put me in a position where I've had to leave and get a job. They have made me take the drive up and tunnels down so we don't have proper access to the farm. In terms of access on the site, Mr Byford said it was more of an issue for the larger groups and coaches as well as those who are disabled. He added, what have they, what have they the council, achieved? They have stopped children coming to the farm, children coming down to learn about the animals and look after the animals. The farm is still open and is being run by Mr Byford's partner Sue Smith while he has taken up a job with a fruit and veg wholesale company but is still supporting the farm financially. He said, it's fruit and veg wholesale, my background and I love it, but it's not the farm. The planning dispute with the district council has been long running, with the farm launching a campaign in 2021 to safeguard its future. With the lease up this summer, Miss Smith is exploring if she can continue to carry the farm on in a similar vein to how it has been running with learning opportunities for children and adults. She said, we don't want to stop. We still have people who use it for therapy services. We still have education and children's clubs that run throughout the week. We still grow vegetables and have animals to look after. We have a therapy day, which is a free event on June the 4th from 4 from 10, to, sorry, from 10 to 4 p.m. to get everybody to see what we are about. A Mid-Suffolk District Council spokesperson said the authority recognised the rich agricultural heritage of the area and supported farming, which it said is why it took all the steps possible to minimise enforcement action. The spokesman said, We welcome Mr Byford's decision to remove the metal containers that were on the site and we will be re-inspecting the land to review whether the outstanding issues have been rectified. Anyone found to be in breach of planning control is given a reasonable period of time to correct the situation and prosecution is only ever used as a last resort. Looking back 50 years ago, Milton Hall Rural Council was accused of being uncooperative in 1973 by two housewives who spent an afternoon with their heads down a drain searching for a bundle of keys. Betty Ball and neighbour Glenis Gilbert were out for an afternoon stroll when Mrs Ball's year-old son, Andrew, got hold of the keys, complete with a plastic fish charm, and dropped them down the drain. They decided to contact Milton Hall Council. After a phone call, a spokesman told them there was nothing they could do and advised the women to fish for them. Glenis and her husband were having to make do with the one front door key they had left. Now for the Weather Watch by Alan Messam. The headline, a wet start to May and then drought. With only 10 millimetres of rain in the two weeks up to the 4th, a thundery outburst early afternoon on the 5th was a welcome change. With more rain the following day, 30 millimetres had come down in four days, although the coronation day on Sunday the 7th was pleasantly warm and dry. The next day was cloudy again, with wet weather coming in from the west that night. Thundery showers doomed the market day on the 10th 
And despite several afternoon heavy rain showers seen falling from the base of abundant cumulonimbus clouds to the south and west, only 0.2 millimetres fell on the linnet. Winds by then were getting round to the north and getting cooler. The last spell of moderate rain came on the windy Friday the 12th with air pressure rising. Who would have thought then of the arrival of a long, dry and cool spell? With persistent winds off the North Sea setting in, it stayed dry for the rest of the month, with maximum temperatures rarely getting above 20 degrees centigrade, although May ended dreary on Wednesday with 0.3 millimetres rain in the gauge. With a wet March, the spring three-month total was well above the average. Our favourite topic of conversation continued. For the past few weeks, most of the country's been basking in sunshine with temperatures higher than 20 degrees centigrade. But why has Suffolk been missing out? And this week, it is expected to get even hotter for much of the country with the warmest day of the year predicted, although this may not be the case for the county. The Met Office has revealed why Suffolk has been left in mild temperatures while elsewhere people have been sunbathing. Graham Midge, a spokesman for the Met Office, explained an area of high pressure in the northwest of the UK has left Suffolk with cooler and overcast temperatures. A high pressure area creates very dense air leading to persistent fine and settled weather, he said. However, the east has been subjected to very different conditions. Air has been flowing in a clockwise direction around the area of high pressure in the northwest. By the time this reaches the east, it has brought cooler air from the North Sea. It is also picking up moisture from the sea surface, causing clouds to form around coastal areas which have been slow to burn off. As the week progresses, temperatures could reach highs of 27 degrees in Wales and southwest England by Thursday, according to the Met Office. Suffolk is expected to remain cool, with highs of about 19 degrees centigrade, although this may change by the weekend. Storm Oscar, which has been brewing over the Canary Islands, is to bring warmer air from the continent, which will cause the high-pressure area to shift out of the way. While the region may not see temperatures swelter as high as in the west of the country, it is still predicted to reach highs of 23 degrees inland, while it will remain cooler on the coast. OK, we are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week so until then from claire pat nick and jill it's goodbye goodbye listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website 
at www.stedmondsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio. Thank you.